Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. This is Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist with you here. I want to start off by reminding everyone that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. This does not constitute a working with a licensed mental health therapist or professional. I do recommend you seek one in your area to work on your unique issues. So today, as you've heard from some of the other podcasts, of late that uh, we're still wrapping up from going to San Diego Comic-Con. And so I want to introduce our guest today, who is also on one of the panels I was with, uh, dealing with diversity and the way of supporting and being recognized in the nature of what is we find in the geekdom, but also for an interest in uh, an area of work, not just in art and uh, comic books, but also in design, because pretty much if you have watched any of the shows I'm going to list in this bio, you have probably seen their work. So I'd like to introduce you to Mark A.J. Nazel. He is a L.A.-based multicultural filmmaker and a multi-nominated Primetime Emmy award-winning visual effects artist and supervisor known for his work on Fox's Batman-based hit series, Gotham. He's currently the digital, the, the, sorry, he's currently the director of digital content at CO Acaso VFX. Cosa, it's Cosa. Ah, Cosa, uh, VFX, an award-winning North American film and television visual effects studio renowned for their work on Marvel's Agents of Shields, Marvel's Runaways, DC's Swamp Things, Netflix's Lufer, Luf, sorry, Luce, Lucifer, and uh, HBO's Westworld, among others, where he contributes to various roles, ranging from artists to supervising roles in various departments. Additionally, he is one of the co-founders and serves as the chief creative officer and writer-creator for Dewata Komikis, a emerging diverse, diversity-focused indie comic company dedicated to sharing stories from the team's multicultural heritage. Their flagship title, Camina, a Filipino-American urban mythology debuted at Comic-Con Special Edition in 2021 to wide community acclaim and boosted a growing international fan base. He is committed to telling stories that blend science fiction and fantasy elements with real-world themes and current issues in globalization, multicultural setting, and showcasing new stories from underrepresented cultures in the mainstream. Mark, welcome to Untying Knots. Um, thanks for having me, Perry. Also, um, wanted to do a quick correction. Um, oh. It's Diwata and comics, just straight out. Ah. Um, the reason why comics is the way that it, the way that it's spelled in within our company is because we decided to spell it with the Filipino spelling to bring oh. awareness to the fact that there is a growing subculture of comics over there. Um, but I do feel like it really hasn't had. Um, the visibility or the advantage that Japanese anime has had over the years. But I, mm-hmm. you know, I believe that it has the potential for becoming some, have, having a similar track to um, anime and manga because it has 
a lot of themes that are unique to it, but also a stylistic approach and a growing community of just really impressive creators. So we wanted to bring visibility to that. That's why instead of calling it Duwata, which is a godlike mythological mm-hmm. being, um, we chose comics with a K-O-M-I-K-S as spelled within that community to bring visibility to it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it makes complete sense. It didn't click for me. <laughs> and that's also where my dyslexia gets in. It's like, that's a different spelling. I'm trying to figure out how to sp- how to say it and not screw it up. But, no worries. But welcome to the podcast, and thank you for that correction. And that's more of what we're going to be talking about here, too, because that's not an op- an aspect of knowing what's going on in the Philippines and the way the comics are having their let's call it renaissance uh, or immersion in some of the other markets in the world. But I'm curious, how did you get here from right now developing comics to doing the visual effects work that you do? So um, just to clarify, um, I've stepped away from, I guess when I say stepped away, stepped away from a company level doing the visual effects work. My role Mm -hmm. right now is more on the executive level. Um, Mm -hmm. As mentioned, I'm currently the director of digital content, which is a really all-encompassing role that touches on a lot or if not every department at the studio. So it's definitely of a higher level managerial executive work. Um, Mm -hmm. I still have artistry that, I mean, artist, artist type work that I do on my own that never goes away. I still mentor um, younger artists as well, while also taking care of the training for the studio. So just wanted to clarify that, that it, that mm-hmm. is not my current role, but it is the role that I started with and is the, was the role that I grew up in, which is why I believe the company values a lot of the perspectives I bring to the company in that regard, because I was in all of the seats that they've had, which actually brings me to it. Um, how did I get here? Let's, let's start mm-hmm. with that question. When you say here, um, I actually thought about that in my head and in my head, how did I get to this country? And then we can kind of like go into how mm-hmm. did I get to those particular roles? Um, mm-hmm. So just for reference, um, my background is Filipino. My, my, my parents are from the Philippines, but I grew up, majority of my childhood was in the Middle East in the United Arab Emirates. So therefore my upbringing was really not purely from the Philippines. I was there mm-hmm. for until I was about six but a lot of my growing up was really informed by this third culture kid mentality where you grow up outside of your culture, but also um, in a very international community without direct distinction. Um, after that, I went to Australia because for some reason I thought um, I wanted to go to college there and my grandmother was there, but that didn't kind of work out because my grandmother prematurely passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was invited by my cousins to come here, no, them knowing that I had an interest in media. Um, although I will caveat that during that period, I didn't really know how to foster that or what that even meant. Because for an immigrant child, I would say or I would argue that possibility is a level so far different than if you grew up in LA, right? If you Mm -hmm. grew up in LA, things are, you know, just in your backyard. So the level of possibility for you is like, oh, I want to do that because I see it. For me, everything was a lot less tangible, if I may say, like a lot of it was just like impossible. Um, You know, like as an example, when I was in high school, I was already very adept doing the kinds of work that I do today, but 
I didn't really want to admit that that's what I wanted because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to set myself up for disappointment was probably what was prematurely in my thoughts at the time. Um, like for instance, one of my good friends, mom was like, you're going to work in TV one day. And I'm just like, yeah, that'll never happen. Good luck with that. Um, but yeah, uh, I ended up here in 2004, July, 2004, if I'm not mistaken, I came here on a visit visa. Um, I knew I wanted to stay here, but I really wasn't sure. So it was really just a visit at the time, but that mm-hmm. quickly evolved in going to school as a student. Um, after graduating, <laughs> graduated in one of the toughest film industry markets for LA, which took a little bit of time um, getting into the industry, I'd say about a year and a half or so, found my way to stereoscopic compositing, which is basically doing 3D um, for film and television. My first project that I ever worked on was um, the 3D re-release of The Little Mermaid, which then Mm -hmm. proceeded to Man of Steel. Um, Those were, I think, good foundational moments for me. But I think the place that really defined my career, quite honestly, is the place I'm in now. Um, After that job, well, it didn't end. After I exited that job i found my way back into a back here in la that was in san diego because as i mentioned there was a dry spell for work in la Mm -hmm. because of lack of incentives brought about by x y and z circumstances Mm -hmm. work was very very tight um so yeah i found myself back in la at a studio that was still very much growing um when i started with this company I remember just about 15 people in the studio in a really tiny space like right next to Radio Shack. And now we're a global VFX company with um, offices here in LA, in Vancouver, and in Atlanta. So I think a lot of us during those early years were pivotal to that growth. So how did I get here in terms of um, being here as a professional and all of the things that I was able to accomplish during that time? I would say it's a combination of desire, tenacity, and a little luck. Um, I always say that, especially during my early years, when I say tenacity, I was probably too, I don't know if stupid's the word for it, too stubborn to accept what I wasn't supposed to or wasn't supposed to know just yet. I think I was always after just wanting to do more and more and more. And that probably came along with the whole, um, I was an international student. I had so much at risk and so much to prove really, Mm -hmm. because, you know, when you come here as an international student, you're theoretically not able to do anything until work finds you. So you fight harder for those positions. So you kind of, um, you know, you try to make sure your value increases over time. So, and that's a cultural thing too. Um, There are pluses and minuses to that because I, I come from a culture that expects a lot from you as an individual Um, I think that's kind of like the Asian joke, right? Like a B minus is an F when you think about Mm -hmm. it. I think I, I think it was a glee joke, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of circumstantial, um, circumstantial, circumstantial events, but also, um, mental, um, not restrictions, but rather mental expectations set because of culture because of circumstance and all of that material should be more it's it should sound more joyful but it certainly wasn't an easy journey if i may say no no but i think it's also one of those journeys again we don't get to hear that doesn't get spotlighted often 
uh, and because there's a number of levels to what you were talking about uh, between what it was taking for you to come here, what it was taking for you to find your sort of purpose and working in the VFX world, let alone, I mean, literally, how many people know what it ta- what is the path to get into VFX? Um, I think, you know, getting right now, today, especially, there is such um, an influx of material. Um, I would actually say more than any other time in history, now is a good time to join the industry because there's so much work and there's so much content that just does that doesn't mean ever just anyone can get to it. I think um, getting in is easier today because of the need of work. But I'd say longevity is a much more debatable question and is a much more um, impressive feat if you're able to, A, um, stay within the industry, but B, evolve in many ways within the industry to the point where you're able to affect more than just the artistic work, but able to go beyond that. And I think... Mm -hmm. That takes a certain, again, I keep on saying it, a certain level of tenacity and just desire to want to do more and change along with the industry because it's an ever-changing industry. It's it's art and technology that is constantly evolving, if not yearly, monthly, daily. Um, you find so many nuances that it's hard to really stagnate. Like, I think that was probably one of my traits that I encourage a lot in the junior artists that I would mentor is remain curious indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is not something that I think is commonly inspired or encouraged in how we think about the world and let alone a field like this, where there's always some new form of effect that needs to be generated or conceived. I think mean, yes. we could go from where early visual effects went with, you know, um, blah, smoke powder and such in the black and whites to the how we got the lightsabers of the early Star Wars movies to what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, even that is I think there came a point or at least in my head, um, there comes a point where a lot of the tools get established. But then what what's happening today is those tools have been established as standards, but people are looking for ways to make them more efficient because, I mean, if you recall the Shrek films, like Mm -hmm. if I recall um, rendering times on those. So when you do visual effects work, CG in general, you do things by frames. Um, And some of those were, I don't know how true this is, but like in the past, it wasn't uncommon to have a single frame of a CG shot take six hours to render each frame. So if you multiply that over the entire length of, mm-hmm. a sequ- of a shot, a sequence, a film, those numbers add up to just so much processing power. Whereas today you have tools that are able to replicate those in real time. So it isn't about um, the types of, or the looks of the effects. It's more of evolving the technology so that it becomes less painful to do them. And it becomes mm-hmm. a lot more artistic not technically technically challenging to do those kinds of things. Almost sounds like again, I like a life journey. How we yeah. get easy, <laughs> how we get easier as we advance and go from those difficult stages of being a novice to now being uh, an executive with seeing so much of the, what the company does. You've in some ways mm-hmm. made things easier, although in other words, you made things more complicated because of the level of responsibility you have. 
Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know. I just, um, again, maybe I'm a firm believer that it doesn't, because it doesn't happen overnight, you're almost thankful that it doesn't happen overnight. Like um, I remember during the early years of my career, I really badly wanted to get into a supervisory level because it sounded like such a great thing in my head, not Mm -hmm. realizing that a supervisory level is really dealing with people. And I think that's something that people need to clarify um, it's a great title on paper, but you also have to realize what it's really about. Um, and ha- so to say, not every artist is a great supervisor, despite mm-hmm. how good they are within their artistry, just because mm-hmm. it is more of a people um, and management role to make sure that you're not just looking after your interest, but the best interest of your team. And that takes a lot of empathy, actually. <laughs> and that had to be learned for me as well, because I was always a hothead. Which is kind of very relevant because I know here in Silicon Valley, there are so many times we're hearing about bad managers or managers who aren't really good at their managing the job. And it's like, how many were good engineers then placed in this supervising people, which is not why they got into being engineers in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. So that being said, let's move and talk a bit more about what we were doing at, at, um, Comic-Con, Comic-Con, which are, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I almost said a different convention that I'm going to be dealing with this weekend, but we're talking about San Diego Comic-Con. So we were each on at least, well, ideally we were on two panels and there was a third one you were on that Correct. I had a chance to sit and watch a little of before I had a client emergency I had to go and take care of. Um, all of these were about our diversity. So there was dealing with LGBT and neurodiversity, BIPOC, and you were also on the Native American and Indigenous one. So what was that experience like for you? Um, so maybe perhaps in order to answer that, I should sort of mention my journey into how I got to that point and mm-hmm. why that's relevant. Um, like growing up, like from a culture that was colonized, there was a, a heavy colonial mentality, or there is a heavy colonial mentality, I would say, established within our community um, and in turn within us, right? Like I grew up not really proud of the way I looked or who I was as a person. Therefore, my, my name in different configuration, my name as written had different configurations depending on how proud I was of certain parts of my name. Um, or there was even a time in my life where I wanted to change it into a more acceptable sort of standard name. Um, so mm-hmm. the name itself, therefore I mentioned, you know, we should talk about that. It took a while for me to accept, but going into that, Um, What really spurned a whole lot of it was when I first started within the industry, it was almost always just this focus of I wanted to work on everyone else's projects. Like I wanted to work on the big projects. I wanted to work on, you know, the Batmans, the Supermans, Mm -hmm. the whatever. Um, But I think after a while, you realize that at the end of the day, um, for one, you don't own those projects. Those projects have multiple stakeholders and multiple decision makers, and you're not one of them. Uh, in order to tell a truly authentic story or a story that is authentic to you or to people like you or to your community, it has to come from somebody quite like you. And for us, um, to my knowledge, as of the last census, we're the second largest growing Asian American population, but yet our representation in film and television hasn't really been the greatest, Um, you know, only because it's due to the multicultural aspect of our racial mix-up it's so easy for us to kind of 
play other Asian or other mm -hmm. in so many mm -hmm. ways. Um, and, you know, um, and for me, I kind of, it took a while for me to reach a point where I'm like, you know what, I wanted to, I want to explore more of that. And I want to know what that really means and how to tell those stories that I now remember and put them out for um, a larger audience to discover, which mm -hmm. again, like, let's, let's, let's talk about acceptance. Right. And I hate to kind of use this story as a part of the acceptance. And I think I did mention this during one of the panels the acceptance for me and the confidence for me didn't really happen until the Emmys because I felt mm. like it took that moment for me to validate my own voice and not just doubt every single decision I made um, because it was such a, it was such a strange moment of elation and validation that it's like, okay, if I was able to achieve this, then I should probably think about, what that responsibility means because maybe perhaps the perception that came with that was I recall a moment in 2015 when we were first nominated and we didn't win. And, you know, you go to your after party, you tell people that that was a part of your journey and it didn't really matter. But the moment you won, everybody paid attention to every single word. They didn't even know you. They wanted to take pictures with you. So I was like, well, this is a responsibility because people now listen to you and kind of like give weight to your name just because of that. Um, so for me, it was, that was one part, but it also did give me enough of a confidence to finally stop doubting myself and just, you know what, just do something just because you want to. However, I want to caveat this with, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't no. have had to take a moment like that to feel or to validate yourself. Because when I think about telling that story and I probably didn't tweak, um, telling that story until most recently, realizing that that is such a big expectation for anybody to have because as um you know going back to that journey of um immigrant families i'm sure you've heard multiple iterations of the story that people from certain backgrounds are discouraged to go into the arts because it's not seen as a lucrative um a lucrative career path and i happen to come from one of those families mm -hmm. like Oddly enough, it wasn't my parents. It was more of the relatives that I had growing up here. They um, they were very doubtful about really any any potential success that the mm. path I was taking um, would take me to. So I actually cut communication with them for a while until after, again, those moments where I was like, mm. all right, I was able to achieve this. So um, yeah, I guess you can't say anything anymore because I was able to achieve that. But again... That is such a negative because it shouldn't it shouldn't need to be that for um, people within a certain culture to encourage somebody to follow passion. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, you can always caveat with, you know, try to try to find ways to economically support yourself. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I feel like there's from a cultural perspective a support for the arts doesn't come naturally, especially for immigrant families. It's not, in, not encouraged, not generally supported. Yeah. It really also becomes from, I know from the therapy side, talking about the relationship to money and in its own way, how it relates to power. Um, can you explain? Yeah, quite easily. Um, one of the things that often comes up and this is even stuff that even as therapists, when we're talking about what we are say charging, because I don't know if you saw the John Oliver one talking about mental health care that came out recently. We're always in a struggle of it being a devalued 
job and career, Mm -hmm. even though right now, after everything that's happened since the pandemic, we are a very critical needed profession. And so many therapists struggle with the aspect of how much, if we have to charge, are we charging enough to allow us to, you know, keep the lights on and keep ourselves together, let alone work a 40, 60, 80 hour week and burn ourselves out supporting everybody else. Yeah. And part of that becomes an aspect of what are we not only looking at with the mindset around our tasks in that, but also that sense of value ourselves and how money played a factor in establishing that that sense of value. Did we grow up in a place of poverty? Did we grow up in a place of excess? All of those still had an influence about how we see money and how we use it and the power that comes with it or comes without it. And I can see that being another message that also is wrapped up in the immigrant story of, depending on the situation, coming to the U.S. and either having everything and having to, uh, and or having every everything back there, and then having to start over at a lower place, which affects what type of income you have. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, perhaps I was lucky that I came at such an early age because I think um, if you could recall, there was a. You know, there was a point in, did you watch Crazy Rich Asians? I'm not sure if you did. I know of the movie. I haven't watched it. Okay. So one of my favorite lines in there was when the mom looked at, I forgot her character's name, but looked at the daughter and said, you may look Chinese from the outside, but on the inside, you're very American and you're very mm-hmm. different. And I kind of, I sort of find myself maybe in a, 75 25 position on that one like not a hundred percent but mm-hmm. i'd say majority of my adulthood was very much american and therefore a lot of um a lot of the choices that i make today and a lot of the a lot of the thought processes are definitely a lot more informed by my growing up here whereas i think mm-hmm. if i had come at a much later age it would have been kind of the opposite um, mm-hmm. The only difference is I'm still super hyper aware of, you know, what I know from those early lives. Exactly. And so each of those early lives had a relationship with some yeah. form of money. And that's where that becomes another thread and it comes another place of, to work, not just for therapists, but for individuals. When we have couples or people who ex- often have issues with paying their bills or they're buying the expensive things or they're trying to live a lifestyle that they can't really afford or feel that they have the money, but they don't feel worthy in spending it to be comfortable. They feel like they still have to suffer. You know what? That took a while to really decouple away from. So Mm -hmm. I would say um, being able to, you know, enjoy a little bit more most likely came from my thirties, but at the same time, I don't know if that's cultural or that's just, growth well i would say it's maybe a little bit of both (laughs) a little bit of both because there you as you said being a third generation third culture kid you've gotten each of the different you have the philippines you've got the the dubaian you've got the australian and then you've got the u.s each has got its own slightly different variant on money culture yeah and how it handles and what it means then there is what did you establish then in this field too money means very different thing between being a director in the company versus, uh, 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 shall we say, a grunt in the bullpen. I would I would say not true because mm-hmm. um, from an artistic standpoint, um, 
I'm actually proud to say that if you're a sought after artist or a senior artist with credibility mm-hmm. within this industry, you can, you can match mm-hmm. those rates. Mm-hmm. Like it's, there's still very lucrative rates. Like um, maybe perhaps that's a plus, a plus side of the industry where if you're valued, your value does show in your rate. So, mm-hmm. And ultimately that value and that rate is still tied to money. Well, yes, it's very much so. Yeah. So there's a dance that still goes on in all of that. Yeah. I think that's a place where we can take a break. So come back here and listen to our second half. This is Untying Knots. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Mark A.J. Nazel, a artist extraordinaire and now manager extraordinaire. And we'll be back shortly, folks. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Welcome back, folks. It's time for our second half here on Untying Knots. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm here with Mark A.J. Nazaro. So we met during San Diego Comic-Con as we were on some panels there and talking about uh, LGBT, neurodiversity, indigenous support, as well as BIPOC support. And one of the things that Mark had was debuting was the start of a major character for the Duwata comic line. So shall we talk a bit more about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. So as mentioned earlier, Carmina was the first mm-hmm. character that we um, debuted from a comics perspective. And the new character that we debuted um, is titled The Hidden World of Anton Jimenez. The mm. reason that, that that character is so close and dear to me was because I, in theory, wrote that character when I was... 16, 17 in 2002. I hope that's lining up timeline wise, mm-hmm. but um, roughly around that period. However, I want to point to the fact that when I wrote that character, that wasn't the character's name and that wasn't how the character looked like. Um, I'm assuming, Perry, at one point, mm-hmm. you're, you'll probably have a graphic showing what this character looks like. This character, in you know, in all, in many respects, looks like, looked like me when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was really important for me in doing that was it was like a, the character itself was already my psyche, but in 2002, all the way until just about <laughs> in theory, two years ago, that character has always been a Caucasian character because that's, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't feel brave enough to sort of like put my mind, my psyche, my name into a character that looks like me because I felt like I needed to hide under that um, 
to be cool or to be accepted or mm-hmm. to kind of like become a major character. And whereas now my perspective shifts to um, it's great for me to be able to create the character and put a more authentic face to the character so that no other person um, has to feel that when I say no other person, I hope I'm not, I'm not being so ambitious in hoping that it'll reach such a large role, make such a large impact. But my hope is that it'll at least um, reach somebody who, who it can relate to. And, mm-hmm. you know, they read the story regarding the development of the character and have that be relevant within their storytelling. Um and again, and also the other part of it too was names. Um, mm-hmm. Today, diversity is such a hot topic issue, and everybody wants to kind of like jump into the bandwagon. But I feel like there's still a there's still a um, a level of control to how that diversity is shown versus mm-hmm. the full authentic version of diversity. In fact, I was just at a Television Academy Emmys event yesterday, where um, a particular comedian was talking about how in the early 2000s, her show was, you know, was judged a lot harshly because they, when I say they, the executives at the time didn't agree with the stories that she was, the stories that she was um, telling based on authenticity, because they didn't think that that was a Latina story when in theory it was her personal story. Mm -hmm. So who are these people um, to tell her that, her story isn't authentic when it's literally her life story. Right. Right. Which is gets also into what we were talking about during these panels is about the, uh, the authenticity of these experiences we're having. And again, no one else can tell us these things didn't happen. And that's also one. Yeah. And that's one of the critical things that's also come up in the therapy world, dealing with BIPOC and multicultural counseling is starting to recognize getting more, especially white therapists, uh, to recognize that they are not the default. Yeah. And that and the think, experiences we have. Are yeah, I think my, my favorite line that she said last night was, um, actually, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to mm-hmm. look at that note. It was such um, an impactful statement for me that I actually had to write it down to make sure I, I always repeat it exactly mm-hmm. as it was. She said, you have to trust people to tell the story they want to tell because it's their story. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really what I'm doing with this character. Um, it's, you know, it's a brown character. It's got the name of a brown character. And for me, that was a really relevant thing because I grew up in all respects hating my name. Like mm-hmm. I didn't like that. It didn't sound, um, it didn't sound, it's funny that I'm going to say this, but it doesn't sound American because when I was growing up, like American had a very certain feel like it was almost like hmm, what was the perception of American from a kid who grew up in the Middle East and it's kind of like mostly white and to the point where there are other people within that spectrum but everybody was sort of just mixed like I didn't know Jayla was Latina like that wasn't Mm -hmm. even within my frame of reference in my head she was just American Um, Mm -hmm. but I think for me, putting a name like the name of the character that I'm putting forward normalizes those names and in turn hoping that we become part of the narrative, like just as, say, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Like to me, that's such an impactful story because, number one, I grew up with that show, um, watching that show. And, you know, you and I know you it came from a book as well, but 
names like that become entrenched into people's heads. Like you have Artemis mm-hmm. Fowl, you have different characters who become mm-hmm. um, really impactful over time to different people. But yet there's nobody with our names that have become impactful. So I think for me, being able to practically put a play on words of my name, I mean, it's literally my mother's maiden name, my in theory, Hispanic middle name. And uh, let's just call it a partial nickname based on the Anthony part of my nickname. But being able to put that was empowering because it's giving visibility to people who are like me, who look like me. And here they are front and center as the main character in their story. But yet all of their other friends are from everywhere else because, you know, I wanted, I also wanted it to be a reflection of my experience when I was growing up and going to school here. And the answer is your friends are kind of like different people, different shades, but it's okay to, in this part of the story, you're the main character because hell it is your story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I know what you, I know what you mean. My middle name took a quite a while before I finally became comfortable with it. And it's another example too, of what I uh, was saying about the sort of, let's call it anglicizing, which is what, was talked about in Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, where he tried to had to translate his name into being more comfortable and accepted in America, and it became Sean instead of Shong. Yeah. Hmm. And I know you talked about Percy, which is also something I was reading in the notes in the back of forget which one of the three books I got from you, but I know it's listed in there. Well, I think, and in theory, Carmina is actually the same thing as well. Um, I have a story about Carmina. Carmina actually did not begin as a character from me personally. Um, the way that Carmina began was it was it was one, it was a part, she was a character in a story that was pitched to me as a film. And I think that's an important part mm-hmm. too, where we want to talk about how the development of Carmina actually began as a short film before it was a comic. And I think the 2020 pandemic, which expanded our ability to reach and work with people from all parts of the world, probably contributed to the creation of the comic because um, I've always known that the Philippines had a fantastic comics art community because of the American occupation. Um, I forget I forget which year, but during the American occupation of the mm-hmm. Philippines, um, they had a lot of influences from American comics, therefore created kind of like a a subculture of comics over there that um, has developed over time and is getting, you know, more impressive year by year. Like, um, and I think that also is a testament to the fact that Marvel and DC have outsourced a lot of artwork um, for their particular titles to people from the Philippines. Mm. But besides the point, um, Carmina was the same, um, kind of had a very similar journey to Anton um, in the sense that when she was when she was conceived, she was one of three characters that was pitched to me as um, a trio of witches. Um, mm. And my problem with the people that pitched it was like I told them, hey, there's nothing about these characters. that Number one is original. Number two is relevant to the three of you, because these were three um girls of Filipino-American descent, Mm. but yet they chose a very Eurocentric mythology to put themselves in. Mm -hmm. So I worked with one of them to rewrite it. Um, It just happened naturally that we got along, um, we vibed a lot. And it wasn't until, hmm, I would say it wasn't until 
she was the only one left within the story and we wanted to focus her story. Originally, she was just named Mina and mm. her character was kind of um, inspired by Mina Harker from the Dracula series. Right. Um, but when we decided to shift her mythological origin, I thought about the names that I recalled growing up and Carmina became a name that I somehow gravitated to because I remembered that name from the Philippines and I know that it's um, not a common name, but there was also, again, a power in the name and mm -hmm. somehow it stuck and you have no idea how many um, messages we've gotten when we released the comic of people saying, seeing this character's name on the front page of a comic was like seeing my name on the keychain at the gas station or the souvenir store because right. it's never been done and it's never happened. Um, you have people just gravitating to the character just because it's a name that they've known or um, people who are like, oh, I'm buying this because this is my sister's name or I'm buying this because this is my girlfriend's name or are you shipping to the UK or to France because I wanted to send it to my 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 sister whose name was Carmina. So I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of pride in being able to share um, names from different cultures that haven't really been um, displayed or shown in a hero context. And normalizing those names means you're also normalizing the culture. Very beautiful. So, so at this point, I'm thinking it's like, I want to tie this into our the classic question of what is the myth about mental health? And I think one of the biggest ones you hit was this sense of, at least that I'm hearing, as if I may, is that a sense of identity and how the name is allowing someone to be recognized. I mean, I'll admit, I equally have walked past many of those souvenir stands and have never seen my first name listed there. It's yeah. always a Peter or something else, but it's like never Perry. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about like tying it to mental health, right? I can I, I can mm -hmm. approach this in one of two ways. Um, I come from a culture, I think, where mental health wasn't really discussed. Mm -hmm. um, growing up, I've known of one person entirely from first grade to tenth grade who had any sort of mental anything. Um, mm -hmm. In high school, there was never any mention of it. And I would even argue that even during my early years here, um, I don't think it's really been widely spoken. I think it really hasn't been until the last um, five to 10 years where I think we've made such great strides into truly understanding that there is a need to be understanding, you know, to understand people um, mm -hmm. from that perspective and different therapeutics of just being able to talk to individuals or to talk to professionals about um, issues and, um, you know, decoupling or rather mm -hmm. detangling a lot of the traumas that we've, you know, we've acquired over the years. I think if anything, I've been lucky that I've had a great friend support system um, and, mm -hmm. I don't, and, and the artwork, actually, I would actually argue that, um, the reason that I pushed to doing this art, even though I'm already busy with everything from a professional standpoint is because to me, it's, it's been therapy. It's been therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And I would even argue that it saved me on so many levels. Like when I was at my darkest, um, I think being able to show the art or to do the art has always been a way that I've escaped into a therapeutic means. Beautiful. And that's a normal question. I used to ask a lot of, creators how is mental health 
how is your work and mental health interconnected? And well, you naturally got to that. So. Yeah. And, and to even add to that, um, I would say as a kid, like for, I don't, you may not see it now or maybe you do to some point, like I'm still, I would call myself um, an introverted extrovert. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense where I think at the core, I'm still very much introverted, but I've kind of like learned to socialize and become more introverted as time went along. So another name um, would be an ambervert. Okay. An ambervert. Um, I will make sure to let people know that when they're like, I don't know how to place you. Um, but going back into my childhood, I, I was always that kid who would just like keep my door shut. And mm-hmm. I was always just, you know, away from everyone. Um, and I've always retreated to my art. And even when, um, even during my immigration journey, when I would move from place to place, I think I've always used my art as a way for me not to be strange or different or foreign, because instead of the new kid or the foreign kid or the whatever kid, Mm. I was always the kid that did the cool artwork. And so Mm. in so many ways, I used it as a therapeutic tool, a confidence tool, um, and a sense of escape from a reality that wasn't always easy. And also I would throw in a way of connecting with people too. Well, yeah, um, definitely that. I would say more than anything. In fact, a lot of the stories and characters, I think from both a creative standpoint, um, narratively and visually, were people, collections of people that um, I've, you know, collections of people that I've grown to know over the years. Like Mm -hmm. um, clearly Carmina was a character because we were exposed to um, the creator and the actress that embodied her in the series, Mm -hmm. who is the co-creator Erica. And she is the character that you see when you flip into the second page where there's like a, a visual representation of the character Mm -hmm. in film. Um, But in the hidden world of Anton Jimenez, I think you'll see a lot more similarities to really the friends I've made over, over time. Like when I grew up here, I won't, I won't, I won't ever say who they were or who they were inspired with. People can feel free to speculate, Mm -hmm. but they are based on um, different individuals over time or different personalities over time that I've encountered. And at one point or the other, I'm fairly certain I have a photograph of them where I put them in a surrealistic um, sense where I've, you know, put them flying into ravens or mm-hmm. jumping off a building or playing Superman or, you know, that sort. Like, I've, I think what I do today is not new because I've been doing them since I can remember towards the latter end of high school. Very nice. Very nice. Well, where can folks find Carmina and the other materials that you're putting out? Um, you can find my personal account. Um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MarkFX411. So that's M-A-R-K-F-X411. And you can find Carmina and um, The Hidden World of Anton Jimenez on Duwata Comics. So that's D-I-W-A-T-A and comics with a K-O-M-I-K-S. So one word, Duwata Comics. And then you also said that the Carmina is going to be coming out as the as a production piece. Correct. Film so piece. Carmina currently is in post production right now, post production mm-hmm. visual effects, which takes the longest, quite unfortunately. Right. Um, and I think what's so cool about it, and Perry, I will just say this to you: you 
ordered your stuff just before we sent out the notices for the Wrathborn Goddess. Um, I'll be sending you a complimentary copy. And oh. what you'll see is that the Wrathborn Goddess is almost a carbon copy of the film because we literally waited for our artist Roland to finish the Wrathborn Goddess before we went back to the film because a lot mm -hmm. of the aesthetics he established on the comics made their way into the into film. The film. Yes. Very nice. Now, out of curiosity, are, is, are, are, can you start, also start ordering this from your local comic stores too? Um, we currently, right now, as I mentioned, um, I wish... You know, I wish that everything I did was like just one thing and it was the main, mm -hmm. main source of focus. Right now, we are still a very new company. We started in late 2021. Okay. Um, we've been focusing on conventions because that's where you really draw large crowds. We've been doing localized signings and partnerships with comic book stores in the Los Angeles area only because mm -hmm. that market is a little bit more personal. Mm -hmm. um, you can find us online. I think online is the easiest way to order it from any location within the United States. We're looking to expand to Amazon very soon. So um, look forward to that. But in terms of like an overall nationwide comic book circulation, we're working on it, but we're still not there yet. We're definitely taking our audience in small strides but I will mention that I just recently did get invited to an event in the Bay Area, um, surprisingly, not for a comics festival, but for mm -hmm. a Filipino books festival. Oh, very nice. So that would definitely place to come in and bring those at. And uh, I know we have a few comic conventions that do happen up here. So, And we have a very large Filipino community down here, especially in the South Bay Area. So more than welcome. And I think you'll find a, another marketplace here, too. Yeah. And last but not least, find us at LA Comic Con this December. Um, and again, follow us on socials because more than likely, um, new events will pop up every now and then. Perfect. Well, Mark, I can't thank you again for being here. And uh, and I look forward to putting this episode out, which will be coming in November. Uh, and hopefully more of those things will be ready and able to for people to get there. So this is Untying Knots. I'm Barry Clark, Licensed Marriage and Family therapist and stay tuned for our next episode and be well folks here on the voice american Network. bye thanks all thank you for tuning in for untying knots minds and souls untethered be sure to join your host perry clark for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the voice america empowerment channel